everyone. Can you hear me back there? I tend to have a loud voice, so if it's too loud, you can go like that. So good evening. First, I would like to say how honored I feel to be sitting up here with all of you. Uh, In my indigenous tradition, we have this uh, practice of smudging. I'm sure many of you know smudging. And we always take a sacred object to do the smudging. And I just want to tell you right now, I'm smudging myself on all of you. (laughs) You think it's funny. I think what you have all, what you have all decided to do here is huge. We have this tradition called uh, Vision Quest, uh, Vision Quest, Humblecha, and it's only for four nights. You guys are doing like either a three-month or a six-week Humblecha. That's really admirable. It's huge. Regardless of how you think it's going, you're developing huge amounts of merit for yourself, huge, huge, huge amounts of good karma. I love this saying, it's none of your business how your practice is going. <laughs> it's just about the practice. So tonight I'm talking very fundamentally about the practice, about mindfulness. My talk is about mindfulness. First a little bit about why we practice and then a little about how we practice. So I'd like to start with this quote from Dilgo Kyense Rinpoche. What we normally call the mind is the deluded mind a turbulent vortex of thoughts whipped up by attachment, anger, and ignorance. This mind is always being carried away by one delusion after another. Thoughts of hatred or attachment suddenly arise without warning, and unless they are immediately overpowered by the proper antidote, they quickly take root and proliferate, reinforcing the habitual predominance of hatred or attachment in the mind, and adding more and more karmic imprints. So that is why we practice. I love this quote from my friend, Musha Makita. She was giving a talk, and the title of her talk is, I know that mindfulness practice helps me, but I don't do it. And the reason that we don't do it, even, even in a long retreat, some things that might become stumbling blocks for us or the stories that we tell. The stories that we tell about our fundamental worthiness or unworthiness or about what will make us happy and relieve our suffering. So the Buddha had this wonderful, he has this wonderful teaching about vipalasas. It's one of my favorite ones. And I hope maybe on this retreat to talk more about it. I'm not sure, but 
Uh, it's uh, about distortions, distortions of the mind. And uh, what the Buddha says is that there are four fundamental distortions on three levels. So let me first talk about uh, the levels. The first level is distortions of per- perception. And the classic example of that is that you're walking down the street or maybe you're walking out on the path here and you see a stick lying in the road and you think it's a snake. So you see the snake and you become very worried, you freak out and maybe you're jumping aside. And then not realizing it's a stick, all of these thoughts proliferate in your mind. So you're going from perceptions to thoughts. All these thoughts proliferate about, oh my gosh, this is not a safe environment. In addition to ticks, they have snakes too. (laughs) I heard they just bought that other land. What are they gonna do about all these vermin? You know, so so it'll get uh, your thoughts going. So you'll have distortions of thoughts as well. And they'll proliferate. Papancha, we love our papancha, right? And then given the amount of thoughts, these thoughts actually, if we don't correct the perception, they actually harden into views, to views that we have. And this is a distortion of view. Dita Vipalasa. And it's these fundamental distortions of perception, distortions of thoughts, and distortions of views that we're working with when we're doing our mindfulness practice. And this opportunity that you've all taken to do intensive practice is really key to seeing more clearly what's going on in your own heart and mind and you know how you see the world. Because from what I've seen in my mind, 99% of what I, I perceive, think, and view is erroneous. You know, I can at any moment just stop and question what's going on with my perception. She did this to me, he did that to me. I'm like this, I'm like that. And uh, you know, this system is crooked. That system is no good. This system should honor me like this. All of these perceptions, all of these thoughts, all of these views, they actually form around four basic uh, misperceptions and all of our thoughts actually emerge out of these. And the first one is, and you're gonna recognize these I'm sure right away. The first perception is You know, maybe this is what you might think while you're sitting on your cushion in this next six weeks. These are some of the misperceptions that you might have. And that is the thought, this is the way it's gonna be forever. I'm sure none of you have had that thought, have you? Whatever you're seeing arising in your mind, thoughts of inadequacy or entitlement, You know, this, it's gonna be like this forever. And we're fundamentally misperceiving impermanence. Another thought might be, in order for this experience to be okay, it has to be pleasant. Has anyone thought that? 
Like, I don't want to open to this mind state. Where's all that jhana action? (laughs) Where's all those blissful mind states that are supposed to come with mindfulness? And then this is my favorite one. And, you know, that one, this should be pleasant, is just denying the truth of dukkha. Of course it's going to be unpleasant. It's not always going to be unpleasant, but it's not wrong. It's not a mistake if that's what you're experiencing. This is one of, I think this is my favorite one. The uh, perception, thought, and view that I am making this happen and this is happening to me. That's denying the conditionality of all experience. The causes and conditions coming together, then of course this or that is going to arise. Or of course this or that is going to go away. And it denies that we fundamentally, you know, have no control over past karmic conditions. One of my favorite teachers who might be sitting on the stage right now says, <laughs> the only control we have over the future is the quality of our mind in this moment. That is the only control we have. So given those distortions, given our inability to see clearly, what is the remedy? What remedy do we have? In one discourse, the Buddha said that there are two conditions for the arising of right view. One is the voice of another. Have when someone point, point out right view or the truth. And the second is wise attention. And this is wise attention, mindfulness, right mindfulness. This is the claim of the sutta. This is the only way, O bhikkhus, for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the destruction of suffering and grief, for reaching the right path, for the attainment of nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. Sati. So what is mindfulness? What is the definition of mindfulness? Can there be a definition of mindfulness? When I was preparing for this talk, I found this just small four-page, I think it was just like a commentary, and it might have been written by uh, Joseph and Analio, Analio, uh, Analio Biko, who you probably all know, He's a leading scholar on mindfulness and on early Buddhism, early Buddhist practice. And um, he wrote, he actually wrote a four-page, like, thought piece or essay on the definition of mindfulness. And uh, he said he was writing it while he was actually doing a retreat with Joseph in April of 2014. Was that here? Yeah, it was 
Yeah, yeah. So that was during this retreat. So they might have been thinking about what is the definition of mindfulness. And this is what Analia wrote uh, in, in discussion with uh, Joseph. He said, The theoretical construct of mindfulness and the practices informed by this notion have gone through considerable development in the two and a half millennia in the history of Buddhist thought, making it impossible to speak of Buddhist mindfulness as if it were a monolithic concept. Instead, we need to distinguish between early Buddhist mindfulness and, for example, vipassana mindfulness. In the Theravada tradition, Dzogchen mindfulness. In the Tibetan tradition, Zen mindfulness. In Japanese Buddhism, and MBSR mindfulness, employed in the modern-day clinical setting, just to mention the most salient ones. Each of these constructs of mindfulness, mindfulness has its own intrinsic value informed by the historic context out of which it arose. I just thought that was so beautiful. And I think it's really apropos to any argument that we might be having within ourselves of, well, exactly what is mindfulness? So, in reference to those four most salient types, I want to point out this wonderful book. <laughs> which you can get after the retreat in the bookstore. And then this, someone left in my academic mailbox right before I came. The American psychologist. I know there must be many therapists in the room. And it is the date of this uh, special issue is October 2015, which would be right now. <laughs> and the special issue is the emergence of mindfulness in basic and clinical psychological science. So these two are two of the four that they were talking about. <laughs> When I was in the staff dining room a second ago, I showed uh, Kamala and Joseph these, and I said, which one do you think is better? <laughs> and Joseph said, well, that one's thicker. <laughs> I have absolutely no doubt which one is better. I have a, you know, if I told you, God, I'm just even going to get broken up. This saved my life and transformed my life. I mean, mindfulness, that is. You know, the practice of the Buddha Dharma. Not in BSR. I love MBSR, but the Buddha Dharma has a lot. It's just so transformative. So what is sati? What is right mindfulness? 
So it is the capacity of awareness. We all have the capacity to cultivate mindfulness. I love the way Analyo talks about it as, as a mental quality, sati represents the deliberate, purposeful development of the receptive awareness at the initial stages of the perception process. And, you know, that really speaks to the distortions of our perception, the distortions of our thoughts and the distortions of our views. Mindfulness, strong mindfulness with uh, clear comprehension, it gets rid of all of those, uh, you know, it fills in all of those very deep trenches of neuropathways that determine how we see the world and how we emotionally accept the world. Sati is like a little bit of cement (laughs) in all of those uh, pathways of habitual ways that we experience the world. You know, the habitual ways that we either feel that we deserve this and that, and this is who we are, in ways that we don't even realize in ways that it's very, very difficult for us to see without a strong mindfulness to uh, get rid of uh, perceptual distortions. Important features of mindfulness or sati are bare and equanimous receptivity. It clears up perceptual distortions. It's one of the most important tasks of mindfulness. Another way that we can think about mindfulness is that it's one expression of the middle way. When mental objects come into our mind, mindfulness holds it in the middle. It holds it between becoming accept, uh, obsessed with something. You know what that's like. You have done it, I'm sure, a few times in your life. You know, a thought will come and it will just grab you for some reason and you'll become obsessed. And you won't realize your thinking or the pattern of those thoughts or the implications for how it is making us become this or become that. But on the opposite of that is the denial. And there's a lot of thoughts and emotions that we just refuse to experience. That any hint of them arising and we will do anything to prevent them. Drugs and alcohol, movies, shopping, you know, a lot of things to take us out of that present moment. But mindfulness holds us in between both of those extremes. It allows us to just see clearly what those, what those uh, body sensations, what those um, vedana, what those um, feeling tones are what those thoughts and emotions are, what those hindrances are, what those seven factors of enlightenment are. It holds those things between obsession and denial, between indulgence and repression, between privilege and intolerance. We hold it to be able to see it clearly. It's a middle path between suppression and indulgence. According to the Abhidhamma, 
the salient characteristic of mindfulness is non-superficiality. It really gets down and deep into the experience at the moment. Its function is an absence of confusion. Its manifestation is a state of being turned towards the object. I, I like to call mindfulness the data collection instrument of intuitive awareness. We have two knowledge systems. We have a uh, right brain, or is it a left brain? <laughs> That's conceptual and linear and numeric. It you know, creates the world around us. It creates it through concepts and through agreement on what those concepts mean and conflict and argument about how the world is constructed. That's one of our knowledge systems. And then we have this other knowledge system, this knowledge system of intuitive awareness that, w- that might be helped in the beginning. You know, our mindfulness in the beginning might be strengthened by using notes, mental noting, and just some uh, concepts that let us know that we haven't uh, indulged in an experience and that we're not repressing an experience. But after a while, we need to even let those concepts go to see clearly what's happening in the moment. And what mindfulness does, it sees even the most simple experience and it extracts the wisdom out of that. It sees the characteristics of reality in those experiences directly. We don't, you know, we have to make sure we don't try to see those. All we need to do is let mindfulness do the work. We don't do the work. Mindfulness does the work and wisdom does the work. All we need to do is maintain our continuity of mindfulness uh, and the magic happens all, all, all on its own. I have a dear colleague, Michael, Dr. Michael Yellowbird. He calls mindfulness neuro-decolonization. I love it. It's decolonizing our hearts and our minds of all of these concepts that if, you know, put to the test, put before us, we would say, no, those are not my values. That is not how I want to act into the world. Mindfulness allows us to uh, see the intentions of our, uh, of our thoughts, of our actions, of our behavior. It allows us to see the intentions and then decide, yeah, I want to water those seeds of generosity. I want to water those seeds of the Brahma Viharas, of the divine abodes, of the ten paramis. Yes, I want to water, water those seeds. And when we see intentions of, you know, greed, hatred, and delusion and all its many manifestations, mindfulness allows us to say, hey, that's an intention I don't want to follow. That is an intention, that's so interesting, look at that intention. And it allows us to do the work of purification that is so promised by this practice. One of uh, our colleagues 
Vinnie Ferraro told me I needed to talk about the, t- the tyranny of mindfulness. And uh, I actually, this was crowdsourced at a teacher training, actually at a bench somewhere, I think, around Spirit Rock. I said, what does mindfulness mean? And this is what our cohort said. Mindfulness is not a bulldog herding us back to the breath. Sometimes doesn't it feel like that? Or you might get into that like, wow, I've got to stay on that breath. And um, Rebecca so beautifully this morning talked about the breath, the anchor is a tool, it's not the goal. Some other comments were, some can use it as a method for self-judgment, but we can't hate ourselves into being a better person. Another one of my colleagues said, let's not superimpose the violence of colonization onto our mindfulness. You know, many of our ancestors, regardless of where you're from, regardless of your gender or your orientation or socioeconomic class, were at, had an internal war with themselves. You know, just trying to figure out how to manifest the best for themselves. And in the case of my ancestors and the people I work with, it's like, how do we manifest the best for seven generations to come? And that is, you know, we, we owe it to our ancestors and to those seven generations to take this seriously and not to, you know, not to use this to beat ourselves up, to actually use it to develop self-compassion. You know why? I love this part. So you know why we have to have compassion in our mindfulness? Because compassion relaxes us. Having a deep compassion is a aid and acceptance of whatever is arising. It allows us to accept the experience without too much struggle with it. And relaxation is really key to letting go and opening up, to seeing what we need to see. Here's a quote, uh, a little saying from Sayadat Utejaniya. The balance you have to find is a balance between relaxation and interest. Interest is using wisdom. There is a wisdom quality to interest. People usually try to find a balance between effort and relaxation by using more or less effort. But if there is interest, effort is already present. When the mind is interested in knowing something, there is already effort. But be patient with yourself. To have have zero tension is not easy. And you can't overly effort to be relaxed. (laughs) I've done that. (laughs) Have you ever done that? I gotta relax. 
so one way for us to, when we're getting lost, you know, I was so lucky for uh, a few years or maybe more than a few, I was really lucky I got to sit with uh, Joseph while he did his interviews like two hours a day for like a month. I would sit and listen to his interviews. And it was so wonderful, just this idea of trying to figure out where people might be struggling and just some you know, good pointing in the right direction of what might be happening. But one thing that we can do when we're struggling or when it feels like we're struggling is just come back to the basics. And that was one, you know, often what his advice would be. And we can come back to the basics by just remembering that wonderful acronym of RAIN. I'm sure everyone knows Michelle McDonald's acronym of RAIN. I think uh, Tara Brock also uses it in True Refuge. And that is to recognize, accept, investigate, and uh, if we can, see the non-personal nature of whatever we're struggling with in the moment. Every moment that we have mindfulness, we're purifying our mind. You know, when we have equanimity towards what's arising, we're seeing the mental habit patterns in our mind and we're working, you know, very diligently with them. And I haven't even talked about at all what the four foundations of mindfulness are. But I know that all of us are deeply steeped in that. You wouldn't be at this retreat. I'm sure many of you are actually teaching mindfulness, aren't you? So we know, you know, how mindfulness has been taught. Well, what the Buddha taught, the four foundations of mindfulness, the, uh, the uh, feels, the appropriate feels of practice, the pastures of practice. And we know that the four foundations are observations of the body. And the second are observations of feeling tone, uh, Vedana of feelings of pleasant, unpleasant, and neither pleasant nor unpleasant neutral. The third is observations of the mind or mental states. And then the fourth foundation of mindfulness is mental phenomena, mental objects, events, or qualities. And actually, uh, in that same essay uh, where Analyo and Joseph are talking, Analyo talks about the core elements of Satipatthana, what the Buddha taught. He actually compared all of these early Buddhist texts to find out what were the common elements across all of the texts. And he actually came up with these, uh, these seven elements of the four foundations. The seven core practices that constitute constitute the common ground of the Satipatthana Sutta and its parallel are one contemplates the body by surveying its anatomical parts. One, the basic elements, material elements that make up the body. Two, that would be fire and water and earth and air, how we experience that in the body. That's the second common element and its nature of being subject to falling apart after death. That's the third um, observation that we can make of the body. It's impermanence. It's even at this moment, it's changing and it's aging. 
and it's running away. Practice then continues by contemplating feelings or Vedana. That's the fourth element. And the mind, that's the fifth element. Followed by undertaking contemplation. And this is interesting, what he thought were the common elements of the fourth uh, Satipatthana, the fourth foundation, are awareness of hindrances, awareness of the five hindrances, and my dear sister Erin is going to give us a nice talk on that. And then the awakening factors. I love it when you can see the awakening factors arising in your mind. Maybe some of you who are new to P2 are seeing them, but I'm sure that many of you who've been here for six weeks can just see how the awakening factors are present in the mind and how they really support each other. So those are the four foundations of mindfulness. That's what we're doing here. And um, two other elements of them. And Joseph's wonderful book, which I adore, I've actually probably bought about 30 copies of it because I think, you know, I have it already, but I want it more than I already have it. (laughs) Do you ever get like that? I also just was happy to be given it away. It's the best book. (laughs) Anyway, he talks in the book about two qualities that are, uh, you know, when the Buddha talked about the Satipatthana, about practicing with these four foundations, he also talked about a few elements with that. One of the elements he talked about was ardency. This element of just being uh, enthusiastic and just having a high value for what Satipatthana is, what mindfulness is. And um, also in ardency, there is an element of warmth and of devotion and of love. So, and actually there's uh, things that you can do to, um, to uh, increase the ardency when you're feeling maybe a little uh, uninspired. There are three things actually that uh, you can use to engage ardency or to water the seeds of ardency in your mind. One is you can reflect on the preciousness of the Dhamma. When you think about it, it really is the source of every happiness for us. You know, when we have when we engage with all of the eight path factors, <clears throat> you know, mindfulness is one of the eight path factors. And, you know, I'll tell you, after seeing what's going on in my mind and heart, just all the distortions of perceptions, a lack of clarity, I just realized that this is an eightfold path and the practice is 24 7. And, you know, you're so lucky right now, you have the opportunity to really engage ardently with the practice to really see clearly what's going on in your own heart and mind. So to reflect on the preciousness of the Dharma, you know, maybe on the Buddha himself. I think that the Buddha should have written that American psychologist 
It's so funny that, um, you know, things that are really popular right now in neuroscience and neuropsychology, things like, you know, the plasticity of the brain and how it works. You know, the Buddha talked about brain malleability 2,500 years ago. How did he know that? Just the preciousness of these teachings to reflect on that. Another reflection that engages our ardency is a reflection on impermanence. Just to think to ourselves, have we ever had anything or um, nothing that we have, no one in our lives and no state of mind is exempt, is exempt from impermanence? I think one of my teachers, I can't remember who it was, loves to use the phrase, I am not exempt. I am not exempt. Whenever anything passes that we maybe don't want to pass, or when you know, something that we get doesn't satisfy us the way we want it to. You know, I too am subject to dukkha. And then finally, reflections on karma will help engage and water the seeds of ardency. From the Dhammapada, mind is the forerunner of all things. Speak or act with an impure mind and sorrow will follow you as surely as the wheel follows the ox that draws the cart. Mind is the forerunner of all things. Speak or act with a pure mind and happiness will follow you as your shadow unshakable. And then the second quality that we are developing with our mindfulness is Sampajana, clear comprehension. And I love Sampajana. I love Sampajana. I was sitting once with Kamala actually at the first refuge. And that was one of her, you know, biggest uh, guidance was so useful to me that, you know, it's not just about being present with what is, it's about clearly seeing what's going on. You know, clearly seeing uh, the intention behind what's motivating this thought, what's motivating this action. And there's four elements of Sampajana, if I can find them in this pile here. And they are knowing what the appropriate domain is. And that's really an important one, and that's one that's been very useful to me. You know, when I realize that, you know, how many more long gray sweaters could you buy, right? It's not going to do it. Or how many more, whatever it is that you think is going to give you that hit of pleasure. And it's an issue of domain. So, you know, for example, you know, I would do uh, retail therapy. And uh, what I did was I just uh, sent all of my catalogs to my junk folder in my email box. It's amazing how much you can really cut down on a a bad habit just by uh, uh, sense restraint, sense restraint, just not allowing it to come before your... uh, your eyes or, you know, to be in contact with it. 
And that's really useful for those of us here who might be experiencing things like Vipassana romances or Vipassana vendettas. <laughs> Everybody's laughing. I think there might be something to that. <laughs> I've noticed that when, um, when I have neutral Vedana, neutral uh, feeling tone, when it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant, when it's neutral, that's when I tend to space out a lot. And it, when my... Uh, feeling tone is neutral, I start making up stories. It's like, well, I can't watch television, I'm not reading anything, I'm gonna make up a story right now. And it could be, you know, that I'm in love with someone who's on the retreat, or that I can't stand someone who's on the retreat. It's a way to engage us in uh, some, maybe something in interesting because it's difficult. We tend to space out when we have a neutral Vedana. You might look at that. You might look at what happens when you have neutral Vedana. That's a good thing. You can extract some wisdom out of that. And around the sensory strain of Sampajana, you know, we shouldn't just be staring at that person. You know, we can, <laughs> we can have a little sensory strain towards the people that we are unduly interested in or unduly aversive to that can be really helpful. So that's one element of Sampajanya is domain. The other three elements, let me find them here. Too many pages. Well, I can't find it, so. <laughs> uh, I'd like to end with just a few uh, quotes about ardency, ardency, effort, and about um, just us reflecting on the value of what we're doing here. I love this uh, small saying by His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Never give up. No, mat no matter what is going on, never give up. Develop the heart. Too much energy in your country is spent developing the mind instead of the heart. Be compassionate, not just to your friend, but to everyone. Be compassionate. Work for peace. In your heart and in the world, work for peace. And I say again, never give up. No matter, no matter what is going on around you, never give up. And I think this speaks to another reflection that we can have, and that is that, you know, the truth is, you know, the truth of the three characteristics is that, you know, that, that, that is the nature of reality. So when we think that we're working for ourselves, or when we think that we're working for our awakening, that's impossible. That's impossible because we are all so fundamentally connected. You know, that's one truth of the uh, indigenous communities that I work in. You know, to them, when I talk about, you know, half of the academic lectures I give turn into Dharma talks. And it's kind of fun. <laughs> and, you know, I usually give talks in tribal communities and it's like, of course that's true. 
you know, the three characteristics, particularly the understanding of our fundamental interconnectedness. It is such a way of being and a way of living and a fundamental a value and a fundamental knowledge. And um, so when the Dalai Lama says, you know, work for peace and work for peace for everyone, there's no way that we cannot do that. Even if we don't realize we're doing that, any peace that we bring to ourselves with this practice, we're offering to ever-widening circles in our lives. And I'm sure every single one of you is like a pillar of wisdom and compassion in your family circle, in your work circle, in your, uh, you know, in your environment. You're the go-to person for, for solace, for wisdom, for understanding. And, you know, here you're doing that, you know, you're offering yourself, you know, for that, to be that, that voice of wisdom and peace in your environment. Let me see before I end if there's anything else I would like to just have to say. Here's a nice little quote about ardency. Effort versus success. Effort is more important than so-called success because effort is a real thing. What we call success is just a manifestation of our mind's ability to categorize things. This is success, that is failure. Who says? You says. That's all. Reality is what it, it is beyond all concepts of success and failure. So... I just want to offer you my deep gratitude for the practice that you're doing and to say that you're really lucky. (laughs) Being a yogi is one of the most wonderful things in the world. Even if it doesn't feel good sometimes, even if you're struggling, it is like the best place to be. And I'm gonna smudge myself on you as I close. Thank you all so much for your practice. Let's just sit for a minute and delight in our own goodness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.